Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon. I'm Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum, and welcome to Policy Speaking. Today we'll be talking about a recently released PPF paper, New North Star 2, our second examination of how Canadian competitiveness is changing in a very different world. The original New North Star was published last April to great fanfare. It spoke to how public policy was falling behind the development of an intangibles economy. The authors noted the most valuable assets in a modern economy are no longer tangible items like factories and inventory, but intangible ones such as data, intellectual property, and brands. And people, of course, particularly those with the skills and talents to make this intangibles economy tick. These intangible assets tend to be associated in people's minds with the tech sector, which is true enough. But they also play a prominent role in resource companies, ag companies, among manufacturers, just about everywhere goods and services are produced and people interact, you will find this growing intangibles economy. The main argument of the first new North Star was that Canadian policy had failed to keep up with these changes and that a new multi-partisan economic policy consensus was required. New North Star 2 continues this exploration of the new factors of Canadian competitiveness. The authors situate the rise of the intangibles economy alongside an historic technology-based rivalry between the United States and China. They say that the long-standing Washington consensus, which articulated laissez-faire policies in a smaller state, no longer cuts it. Instead, we need to return to a smarter, more restrained version of industrial policy, as you'll hear in a few moments. For good measure, they discuss how the COVID-19 crisis fits with their thesis and their mission-based prescriptions. Before I introduce the authors of the report, I just want to take a moment to recognize PPF sponsors on this important research. Research is expensive to undertake and provides an invaluable return on investment. So our heartfelt thanks go to CIBC, our lead sponsor, and to Concordia University, Microsoft, McCarthy Tetro, Mosaic Forest Management, the National Research Council of Canada, the Business Council of Canada, TELUS, and CDEC. As you can see, there's a lot of people who are very interested in this topic and understanding and unlocking the key to a uh, more prosperous Canadian future. Now to our authors and panelists today, Sean Spear, who is currently Fellow in Residence and Prime Minister Canada Fellow at the Public Policy Forum. He's also an Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And Sean previously served as a Senior Economist Economic Advisor to former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Robert Asselin, who is Senior Global Director, Public Policy for BlackBerry. He is also a PPF Fellow. And from 2015 to 2017, Robert served as Policy and Budget Director to Canada's Finance Minister. And he also advised Prime Ministers Paul Martin and Justin Trudeau. And finally, we are joined by Royce Mendez, Executive Director and Senior Economist at CIBC Capital Markets. Royce leads efforts to monitor and forecast the Canadian economy, which I think has been keeping him very busy of late. Prior to joining CIBC, 
Roy spent several years at the Bank of Canada. He provided an important compliment to Sean and Robert in this, the second report. Thank you all for joining us on Policy Speaking. And Sean, I'm going to start with you. So the first question would easily be why this report now? You took a first pass at this last year. Uh, what still needed to be said? Uh, well, first of all, uh, Ed, let me thank uh, you and the Public Policy Forum for enabling us to carry out this work. Uh, it's been, uh, as you know, one of the most intellectually stimulating and rewarding experiences that I've had in the world of public policy. And that's in no large uh, part uh, due to the Public Policy Forum's openness to intellectual diversity, engagement. And so uh, I'm grateful for your support on this particular project and throughout my work with the Public Policy Forum. Uh, one of the reasons I'm especially grateful is that you've brought me together with Robert Asselin, who's become a not only an intellectual partner, but a, a good friend, and, and now Royce Mendez, who's contributed to this uh, latest report. You asked, what's different? Why, why did we need to, to drill further into some of the questions first posed in uh, last year's report? You know, to be honest, Ed, as you know, I think when we came together last year, I thought we were going to produce a conventional report on economic competitiveness. But as we got started, as we began to speak to people in high tech, finance, forestry, agriculture, and so on, I think we came to appreciate that there was something else going on below the surface. The intangible economy, as you described in your introductory remark, was really transforming where economic value is derived and who participates in it. We heard examples like John Deere, for instance, which is on the face of it, uh, one of the oldest, most conventional, good producing uh, companies in the world but in recent years has become a major player in big data and data management. Um, and so our report sought to draw attention to the shift the intangible economy and sought to outline how Canadian policymakers ought to think about the impact on public policy. And, and since then, we've been thinking about and talking about these questions, and in particular, what the public policy implications are for Canada. Last year, I think we made an important recognition of the rise of the intangibles economy. But the truth is, our policy recommendations were pretty conventional. It's almost as if it was easier for us to see these new issues, but for harder for us to think about what to do about them. And the New North Star One also neglected the geopolitical dynamic. That is, the extent to which the shifts to an intangible economy correlate to the growing U.S.-China rivalry and what that means for a mid-sized trading country like Canada. And so in today's report, we've returned to the question of the intangible economy. But we've added this geopolitical dynamic and sought to understand how intangible capital and its tendency towards scalability is contributing to a renewed great power competition in the realm of geopolitics. And we've sought to outline what the consequences are for Canada. I would just finish by saying that question seemed important as we worked away on the report in December and January. Uh, it's obviously taken on heightened relevance in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, which I think most ex analysts agree will exacerbate these trends. And so that's really what we've aimed to do. I think that's why we thought more inquiry was needed. And, and hopefully the report this year will sharpen people's thinking and, and, and in so doing, start to cultivate the, the consensus toward the new, a new policy framework for Canada. I just want to go uh, down one small hole here, which is uh, the geopolitical one that you just raised and the, you know, what people talk about, the greater decoupling of China and the United States. So, you know, you start down the road of talking about an intangibles economy, and then you recognize that there's a geopolitical element that has to be part of the conversation. Just tell us that process that went through your heads as authors and, and how you came to that conclusion that you had to talk about this. 
Robert? Yeah, I can go. I'm happy to answer that. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Really, I think the, the foundation of our thinking on this, Ed, is that Canada has always relied on two very important economic anchors. The first one, of course, is our U.S. reliable partner, essentially. The fact that, you know, we had a trade agreement uh, and this was part of the Washington consensus. We can talk about that a bit later. We had a country south of us that was taking care basically of our economic interests. And that, and that I think we took for granted. Obviously, we now know that this has changed to a certain degree. And that I think has repercussions on how we think about economic policy. That's the first anchor that I think foundationally that impacts our thinking in this paper. The second is, of course, the fact that uh, Canada always relied on a multilateral rule-based order, which is to say that because we're trading nations, we could count it on a system globally that worked for us, uh, free trade agreements, trade agreements overall, uh, an acceptance that there were global rules, that people were playing together nicely. It was not perfect. It was always hiccups, but overall it worked pretty well for Canada. And so in our estimation, and this is why we put so much emphasis on geopolitics in this paper, is that these two anchors being disrupted heavily in our view, and we may, we may discuss you know, if this will be long-term and the effect it will be on Canada, but certainly no one can dispute that in the short term, this is significant for Canada. The answer then is how do we respond? We certainly as a, have observed by writing this paper that a lot of countries are reacting to these two problems by asserting themselves much more aggressively on national industrial policy, uh, strategically supporting sectors, uh, research, making sure that they could win on the global economy scale and also protect their part of the global supply they were building. So essentially, our, our thinking on the geopolitics is that it's a major, major factor in how we should see economic policy going forward. In fact, Sean and I always discuss this, but it's the return of the political economy in a sense that geopolitics and global economy are now linked together. And we're of the view that the U.S.-China relationship will define our era. And Canada being squeezed, as we've seen in many recent cases between these two giants, it will make us very uncomfortable and it will need to have us react in a way that I think for our government to be more assertive, economically speaking. So that's in general, I think, how we can summarize it. If I just may elaborate on that for one second, Ed, I think these forces are reinforced by the unique characteristics and features of the intangibles economy. I think the good, goods producing model tended towards mutually beneficial exchange, but the unique features of intangible assets, their scalability, the tendency towards monopoly rents, all of these things I think are only heightening the inherent competition in geopolitics and pushing in the direction of what Fried Zakaria recently described as transition from a soft rivalry between the United States and China to a hard rivalry. The question, of course, for a country like Canada, given these forces, given the interaction between economics and geopolitics, what's the right strategy for Canada? And that's what the latest report in the New North Star 2 tries to set out. I want to include Royce in the conversation in one second. I just want to, you know, respond to what you just said in a sense, Sean. And I also want to read one line that had jumped out at me from the report. Robert basically has said it a moment ago, but it was, it's striking to me that Canada cannot count on traditional sources 
of economic activity, nor the US, China, or a liberal global framework to stand up for our competitiveness. And you say then that Canada's political class must assume that responsibility. So that's a, a striking question of having to be more self-reliant, more reliant on ourselves, which of course is very consistent with the COVID-19 discussion the country's having. Royce, I'm sure that you've grown up in, as a laissez-faire economist pretty much. This isn't rejecting, obviously, the market, but it's talking about a greater sense of interventionism. How did you come, if you will, to this, to this kind of uh, conclusion? Look, I think the clear understanding in an environment, particularly with a pandemic is that the market is not going to always function adequately. We've seen it in financial markets. You've seen it across supply chains. You've seen it in the way that normal economic interaction is supposed to go about. It's about social interaction. It's about someone going to a store and spending money in that store. In the new paradigm, that's exactly not what we want to see. There has to be some sort of government intervention here in the short term. But when you think longer term about this, the intangibles economy, this was just an accelerator to moving towards that. We had already seen in Canada that investment in intangibles had far outpaced investment in physical assets. We had seen signs of the geopolitical divide. Now, when you come to try to analyze or forecast the way the Canadian economy is going to go, you have to start thinking about the way Canada can look out for itself. And that in some way, shape or forms involves a policy or an industrial policy. Ed, may I just comment on that for a second? As the former advisor to Stephen Harper in the room, I anticipate that some of my friends on the right will have apprehensions about the report's diagnosis and prescriptions. Uh, And so I think it's worth just addressing those head on for a moment. As you say, well, the report doesn't propose assuming responsibility for the market. This is not central planning. It is a recognition that government has a, a role to play in shaping market outcomes. There are very few natural advantages, market size, geography, these sorts of things, But in the intangibles economy, comparative advantage is partly a function of choices. And it seems to us that's so relevant for policymakers to recognize the choices that we make, the policy frameworks that we put forward will accentuate certain strengths or undermine them. And I think what we're saying is Canadian policymakers need to choose in favor of cultivating sectors and technologies that can scale and that can participate in global supply chains. We say in the paper, neutrality is not an option. To govern is to choose. And we're recommending that policymakers place greater intentionality around the parts of the economy that are going to drive the most value given um, the increasing importance of intangible capital. Robert, I'm going to follow this up with you. And we attended some roundtables across the country. What Sean just uh, spoke about was a contentious point with some people. You've spoken, you referred earlier to the Washington consensus. So let's put this in context, what you're saying, if you will. I mean, Canada, you know, has had industrial policy off and on going back to uh, McDonald's uh, national policy. From the 1980s forward, we sort of dispensed with that idea. 
and move towards, perhaps you'll describe the Washington consensus, but more importantly, why you think its utility has basically petered out and how industrial policy, as you guys are looking at it, will avoid some of the mistakes that it may have made previously? Oh, that's a great question. So why did uh, the, the Washington consensus happen? Essentially, it was an overreach of government in the 70s. Uh, Sean and I were still very young then, but inflation was very high then. And I think there was uh, a vague of new political leaders, uh, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher's in the UK, that came with this idea that the state was a problem and that it had to be reduced. And the Washington consensus referred to basically a series of assumptions of global economic cooperation where government was not really helpful in that conversation. And to the extent that the world economy needed less regulation and more open trade, uh, that was, I think, well received by most countries, most Western countries. And I think uh, we say in the report, we had our version of that, the McDonald report, which I think served Canada very well. We recognize that. We're not revisiting this. I think history is, a, is, a, is about circumstances and adapting to those circumstances. The problem, obviously, with the Washington consensus is the rise of China and how China came to disrupt global supply chain, came to dominate on the technology front, the United States. And now we're, we're, what we're seeing essentially is two titans going after another to make sure that military... Uh, and on national security, they keep the edge. Uh, so this is just not an economic question, an abstraction of who's going to make the best app on a phone. It's really about what will make either the U.S. or the China the global superpower in terms of uh, their own interest and their dominance in the world. And so in that context, the United States is changing its paradigm. It's no longer adhering to this concept of the Washington Consensus it is putting tariff to products. It is asserting itself by a very protectionist agenda, including with Canada. We've seen tariffs on aluminum, on steel, on grounds of national security, stuff that we would never think as a country would happen. Uh, but here we are. And so I think it's a bit of a wake-up call for Canada. And now you add the intangibles economy, which by definition is a winner-take-all kind of paradigm where uh, because of the power of data, you have big, big tech firms essentially dominating the global economy to the point where I think, you know, we can say they are more powerful than most governments right now in the economy. For a country like Canada, it poses a lot of questions. So, you know, when we thought about it's time to put forward an industrial strategy, Sean and I and Royce discussed it, and we were very conscious of the problems that uh, such a, an industrial strategy could pose in terms of you know, creating externalities that would be negative, choosing winners, giving money to certain firms and not others. So we explained in a paper how we, the framework, how we envisage to not do these things, but focus on a challenge-driven framework, which is to say, and we can come to this later, but which is to say we can intersect the kind of big priorities with our economic levers. Well, well, let's come back to the challenge-based sort of framing in, in a moment, as you say. I'm struck by, you know, the winner-take-all 
uh, description. And I'm wondering, Royce, if the COVID-19 crisis has reinforced that in, in many ways, and even if one looks at the performance of individual equities on the stock market, if, if we're seeing a reinforcement in some ways of a, of a winner-take-all type of environment. It's incredible that the stock market has rebounded on the basis of probably just the five largest stocks on the S&P 500, all being largely in the business of intangibles in some way. So if anything, you're absolutely right. The winner-take-all paradigm is even clearer now in the wake of COVID-19. And you can think about that just in your everyday interactions. We are more and more buying from online shops. In Canada, actually, we have less scope to buy from different places. So a lot of people are buying from the big players. Amazon is number one among them. They have a head start in that. And as we move further and further down the line in this new paradigm, there's going to be fewer and fewer shops like that. And if you have a head start with regards to intellectual property, because it is a monopoly right, it is very difficult for anyone to catch up. We've seen that in Canadian business data. The largest companies in Canada, which have a lot of intellectual property and have a productivity advantage over the 90% or 95% of the smaller companies, that gap has just been widening. There's been no dispersion. We haven't been seeing the larger companies drag the smaller companies up in terms of productivity. It's just simply that the gap has been widening. And I would say everyone today knows that the economic environment is different than it was three months ago. But if you think about the purchases you're making, it's likely that you're almost exacerbating that winner-take-all environment. Sean, we had a couple of uh, interesting moments at the round tables, I guess. It wasn't all warm and fuzzy, was it? And I think of uh, two moments that were kind of striking to me, and I, I wonder I wonder maybe you, you comment on it. One was in Toronto when we had somebody with a very strong economics uh, background sort of challenging the whole premise and worried about governments not being able to act fairly and be a a fair allocator of resources, I guess, an opportunity. And then we had an interesting kind of counter moment in Vancouver where we had somebody who's, uh, you know, highly identified with laissez-faire free market economics saying it, it seemed it pained him, but he was saying that when he looks at the competition among nations, it's those countries that have industrial policies that are doing best, and perhaps we have to recognize that. So I guess where the economic realists are, has that moved? It's a great question, and I think I'm particularly poised to answer it because the the tension you describe is something that I've felt myself. I've said throughout this process that it's been agonizing because it's required me to be introspective about my own thinking about markets, about the role of government, and so on. And you use the word realism in your question, Ed, and I think that's uh, so important. I think if you look at the world as it is, not as an exercise in abstraction, it's hard not to come to the conclusion that the intersection between the winner-take-all characteristics of intangible capital is contributing to this new geopolitical dynamic that is going to necessarily require adjustments to our policy framework. We use the phrase in the report in a couple of places, the return of geoeconomics, which is associated with Michael Lind, a scholar at the University of Texas, and other foreign policy experts who I think persuasively argue that these trends are going to require adjustments to our policy frameworks and, and a greater role for government in cultivating the scale 
necessary for domestic firms to participate in this new global economic framework globally. And as you say, how that's done is obviously highly relevant. And, and we work painstakingly through the questions of how to minimize distortions and rent-seeking and so on is typically associated with industrial policy. But I think ultimately, as you've said in, in our previous discussions, Ed, not to act is a choice. And I, I think that's really what policymakers need to keep in the back of their minds as, as Canada goes about navigating this new world. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask about uh, just a couple more questions and I'm going to open it up to, to the audience as well. So please, if you haven't submitted any of the questions that uh, that you want to ask, please do that in the next uh, in the next couple of minutes. So they'll be coming to you. I will come to challenge driven for you, Robert, in a second. I want to just ask Sean. Sean, you know, uh, again, I was struck by something you said a few minutes ago, where we have this technology competition. Both you and Robert have spoken to it, and uh, and Royce as well. We have this technology based competition between the United States and China that has become more exclusionary and less inclusive. This is ties in with a strategic rivalry, which has become even more apparent over over recent months and and is problematic, I think, for anybody who has studied history. You know, this is something not just to recognize, but to figure out how to manage as well. But it's not just, of course, technology. It's drawing everybody into this, uh, isn't it? Uh, we've seen in Canada, oil seeds and beef producers caught up in one of the awful manifestations of this, which is tension of, of our two nationals in uh, in China. So this isn't everybody's situation, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I don't want to be presumptuous. There's a lot of people participating in today's discussion who've thought about these questions deeply and are living them quite practically in their current roles and experiences. So I'm, I'm humble about setting out the the solution to this to this challenge. But I, I would just say that I think the two conclusions that we reach in the paper is first, we need to place a much greater emphasis on cultivating our domestic capacities here. And, and you know, that's really, a, that's really the ultimate objective of the industrial policy model that we're putting forward. And then the second is, I think, I'll let Robert speak to this more. I think it's about cultivating relationships with other jurisdictions who are going through similar experiences. As mid-sized, trade-exposed jurisdictions, Canada may be feeling the effects of the U.S.-China rivalry most acutely because of our geographic proximity to the United States, because of the fact that these two countries represent about 60% or more of Canadian trade. But ultimately, I think by working with countries like Australia and others, Canada would be better placed to navigate what, as Rivera says, is bound to be a U.S.-China competition that will animate not just the COVID-19 experience, but geopolitics for the foreseeable future. Just to add on that, as if I may, I think that the European Union is a great example of how this friction between U.S. and China is playing out. What you're seeing in the EU right now is essentially the attempt to create a domestic market between European countries but also domestic demand on you know, building stuff from Europe. And obviously that's a large economic block that is able to do so. But when you look at countries like Germany, the UK, certainly what they are putting forward right now is industrial strategies. You could argue that Germany was in this business for, you know, for some time, but uh, you look at the UK, it's a conservative government. It's not their natural inclination to do something like this. So I think it just shows the extent to which this is a big problem for a lot of people. So it's, it's obviously not just Canada reacting to it and saying, 
what's the problem here? You have a lot of countries around the world. When I work uh, with the finance minister, we went to this G20 meeting and we met the Australian finance minister, who is now prime minister. And he had relayed to us how difficult it was to deal with China. And they had just signed a free trade agreement. And was basically telling us between the lines that he thought maybe they'd make a big mistake. <laughs> uh, this is to show this is going to be a big problem going forward. So Canada is no exempt, obviously, but the problem is, I think historically, we've been relying on the U.S. to be our kind of anchor and say, we're going to be fine for whatever happens in the rest of the world. We now see that it's not the case. And I just want to add a last thing, if I may, on the U.S. People might say, and I think there was a question from the audience that I saw that was written, what happens if Biden wins? Is this just the Trump phenomena? We don't think so. We think that the politics of it in the U.S. will be that both parties, both, both presidential candidates will have to essentially present a much harder stance vis-a-vis -vis China because of what happened with COVID-19, essentially, not just because of the virus, but because of the lack of domestic capacity to do stuff and build stuff and consume stuff and medical supplies, obviously. And so uh, what you're seeing now is Trump obviously basing a lot of his strategy on going after China. But I think what you will see is also Biden, for obvious reasons, will need to revert to not necessarily an IT China rhetoric, but certainly an arding stance that the U.S. needs to win that competition between two titans. Well, I'm, I'm going to ask you one last question. I can't resist the temptation to, because uh, you provoke a, a thought in me that worries me, because I spend time reading about the origins of the First World War and the origins of other cataclysmic events. And I think as a society, we've forgotten what that looks like. I just hope that we don't allow blame over COVID-19 to uh, accountability and understanding where things went wrong is very important, but I don't want that to become like blame on who assassinated Archduke Ferdinand. These things can spin out of control when you're looking to blame rather than looking for answers and solutions. Mm -hmm. With that gratuitous comment, I will come to the payoff of the report, if you will, which is the idea that we should have an industrial strategy and it should be a challenge-driven industrial strategy. So, Sean, why don't I uh, why don't I start with you, Robert Royce, you weigh in. What do we mean by a challenge-driven industrial strategy, and, and how did you come to that? I'll, I'll respond briefly and then uh, let Royce and Robert contribute. Uh, once we came to the conclusion, uh, Ed, that we thought that there was going to have to be adjustments to our policy framework, that we were going to have to lean in to certain sectors or technologies in the name of cultivating scale, uh, in the name of building uh, capacities that could then participate in global supply chains, it led us to the obvious question, which ones to target? And the truth is, there's not a lot of research out there that points in the direction of dispassionate evidence-based judgments for a whole host of reasons, including, of course, the fact that it could be difficult for governments to make judgments about which sectors or which technologies are going to be valuable in the future. And so as we grappled with how to make judgments about the focus of industrial policy, we became inspired by a growing body of work uh, in Europe, in the United States and elsewhere that proposes a industrial policy focused on challenges or missions. And the basic premise is rather than focusing on a particular sector or a particular firm, industrial policy is built 
around a big societal challenge. As we describe it in the report, it's at the intersection between comparative advantage and societal priority. Maybe to be, rather than be abstract, uh, let me be concrete. The reason it typically is called mission-driven industrial policy is because it draws an inspiration from the American mission to, to the moon. Obviously, the goal was to get to the moon. That was the mission. But along the way, by building a, a policy framework around that goal, there was the spin-offs of new technologies, new firms, new innovations that had a tremendous commercial application. And so uh, we set out in the paper a similar model to build an industrial policy around a set of missions uh, relevant to Canadian society, but that can enable policymakers to focus on sectors and technologies where we think Canada can punch above its weight. So, Robert, give us an example or two of, uh, of what that looks like, what priorities are. Yes, what's our going to the moon is going to be, basically, is the question. And we suggest examples in a paper, but those are only examples. I think one that is obvious, that is pretty universal and should not be politically driven or non-consensual, is climate change. We've relied on energy for a long time in this country, and we should be proud of that. Economically speaking, it's been uh, you know, a, a great anchor. But obviously, we have a, a pollution problem, and here's a big society challenge that we need to solve, not just Canada, obviously, globally. The, the idea with challenge-driven, if I may, is uh, government is partnering with the private sector to co-create demand essentially or co-create markets so that if you say I'm going to go to the moon I need stuff to go to the moon and I need a technology to go to the moon if you say that for climate change obviously you're going to set you know ambitious targets as we have both parties I think but with no real mean to achieve it I think and just saying you know we're not we're going to reduce emissions somehow it will happen you need a challenge driven industrial policy to get there so we need our companies, and I think our, our natural resources com company are already there. They are doing it. But the idea is to co-create a market for that clean tech to come out and say, we're going to make this a Kenyan priority, and this is going to be successful. This is the DARPA approach, essentially, in the U.S., which is to say, what are the challenges we need to solve, and how can we partner with the private sector to solve them? We would argue, and I think we're not the only ones, that Silicon Valley was mostly born out of this ambition of the U.S. to, to do these big things they have done over the years, uh, inclu including going to the moon, obviously. GPS, Internet came from these inventions that first were driven by public R&D. This is what we forget. And if I may just do a short segue to what kind of industrial policy, because we haven't talked about this, we are proposing. It is essentially an industrial policy that lives in the intangibles world. And when I say this, it's not to say that it's only for tech company, it's for everyone in, in the economy, but it's to take advantage of our human capital. And in Canada, we have amazing human capital, both by our education system and our immigration system. It's to leverage that. It's also to consider IP, intellectual property, as a corner piece of economic growth as something that is core to our well-being as a nation. And then all this R&D inve investment that we are doing uh, to make sure that at the other end, there's a commercial linkage. So if we are to spend money as a nation heavily on universities, and we do that pretty well, we have to leverage that somehow and make it a commercially viable 
and make us competitive overall. Okay, guys, we have this problem that we like to talk to each other too much and and we want to let some other people in. Let me just finish with a quick question to Royce, which is just, Royce, this challenge that you're posing as authors of this report to to the architects of our economy and to the operators of our economy to focus on growth through, you know, through these means and a different kind of model of growth. Is this something you think that Bay Street and the private sector will be open to? I don't think anyone three months ago was open to everyone working at home. Everything has changed in the past few weeks and months. We are going to need to rebuild. We're in damage control right now. There's going to be a time and place to start reopening the economy gradually and rebuilding. If we come to focus on this, and this is why we wanted to release this now, if we come to focus on this early and the advantages to a challenge-driven approach like this, we can start to rebuild in a manner where we have clear advantages in Canada and we start to catch up, make up some of the lost ground that we've lost to China and the U.S. in terms of productivity. Why is Canada lagging in those places? This is one way to approach that. And I think while we are in an incredibly difficult position at the moment, it creates an incredible opportunity for change and to change people's minds. Ed, before you turn it over, can I just leave it on one final point? Yes. I just want to not only affirm Royce's point, which is so important and is the impetus for uh, releasing the paper in the current context. The other thing to, to emphasize is that well, there are obvious risks associated with the industrial policy model. I don't want to diminish those. We also have clear evidence of success in Canada's history. The paper highlights examples like the Canada arm, which is a function of co-creation, as, as Robert described earlier. Canola, another example of the Natural Research Council working with university researchers and the private sector to create an agriculture export, which is now where Canada has scale, where Canada has global market share. So we've done this before, we can do it again. And I think uh, in a nutshell, the intersection between the intangible economy and the new geopolitics demands that we must. Well, those are good examples. And as the former agriculture reporter of the Regina Leader Post, as, as we're moving from something called uh, rapeseed to canola, a great, uh, a great success story for Canada domestically and internationally. So I'm going to open it up. I apologize that we took up a fair bit more time than we said, but I hope that it's an enriching experience for everyone to do that. Now you get to challenge uh, these guys on what they're proposing. And I'm going to invite uh, Katie Davey, one of the policy leads at the Policy Forum, and who helped produce policy speaking to pose the questions on your behalf that she's been accumulating during the course of the discussion. Katie. Thanks so much, Ed. Uh, I just want to first say that I really enjoyed this conversation. It was so informative and reimagining what a post-COVID world means is so important for this, this work as well. We did receive a few questions in advance, as well as a number of questions which are the Q&A function. And I will just, again, mention, folks, if you do have questions, please feel free to send them over in the Q&A function. I will start just on that lens um, right now about what a post-COVID world might look like. There's a question from Stephen about the increased conversation and need now for national production capacity. So I'd love your, your reaction on how that relates to this report and some of the concepts you've spoken about. I can take a stab at it first. There's no way that Canada can produce everything it needs. So what we have to do is figure out where there are opportunities to either stockpile PPE. That's one thing that was clearly missing from this, from this current crisis. 
Number two, how we can diversify supply chain. So if one of the places that we import a part from goes down, we can get it from somewhere else. Or number three, produced domestically, where we already have some sort of competitive advantage. That, by definition, is less efficient than what you would normally think of in a globalized world. But it is clearly necessary. We are seeing the limits maybe on globalization. And you can just look at the trade numbers. Even before COVID-19, you had begun to see global trade volume start to tail off. People had talked about we had hit the limits of globalization just in time delivery. So there is some need for more domestic production, but some of the answer has to come from other places as well, because Canada can't do it alone. We're a small open economy in a big world. I would just add on that. I think what you will see on the global supply chain point of view is that you'll have more regionalized supply chains now. Obviously, we're already integrated with the United States and we do that well, although we spoke about the challenge of now trading with the U.S. and now there are more barriers than they used to. But I think if we look at the big picture, that this is more likely to, as Roy said, Canada's not going to start uh, producing everything. We've never done that. And we're not going to do that. That would not be efficient and we would not be competitive in everything. But what we can do is double down on the stuff that we do well. And this is basically the basis of our argument is that we need to double down where our strengths are and, uh, and be world leaders where we can. Perfect. Uh, Robert, I'm going to stick with you on this question because you brought it up earlier. Somebody poses the question, uh, the report states, enable experimentation with new models of post-secondary education and training. The question is simply how and to what end? Yeah, this was tricky for us, and Sean can speak to that because, frankly, that's the part he wrote. But essentially, it's a, as everybody knows, it's a provincial jurisdiction, so we wanted to be careful not to be saying to provinces what to do in details. But it goes back to our human capital advantage. We think in Canada we get this part uh, well, but it is changing. Uh, PCE is changing and we have to adapt. And a big part of it is how do we integrate international students after they've come here and they've made us benefit from where they come from and how they can participate in our economy going forward. So I'll let Sean speak to that, but I think it's one of the key things that we've identified that we could do much better. And obviously, in a, in a post-COVID-19, it will become even more important as immigration will become a challenge in, in most places. The only thing I'd add quick, Katie, is that th that section shouldn't be interpreted as a criticism of Canada's post-secondary post institutions, which, as Robert says, are a strength for the country. It's a recognition that growing research shows that there's uh, benefits to hybrid models of education that may involve building in more experiential learning. It may involve greater permeability between universities and colleges or polytechnics. It may involve hybrid forms of education in class and, and online. And one of the challenges is that the strategic mandate agreements negotiated, say, in the province of Ontario between um, post-secondary institutions and the government may not permit the kind of innovation and flexibility that our post-secondary institutions need to better position students, a better position graduates for this new economy. Viewers may be familiar with growing interest in regulatory sandboxes, the idea that uh, government should create some space and flexibility for innovation in, in new technologies and so on. And, and we would say that in some ways, we need a, a policy sandbox or regulatory sandbox for the post-secondary sector to permit our institutions to innovate 
to make sure that their education is responsive to these new trends in the economy. And as I say, I think our institutions are more than up to it. It's more a matter of government permitting the kind of experimentation, innovation that I think will be so important. So this conversation has sparked a few follow-ups. So I'll, I'll continue with those questions. I'll ask both at the same time, just uh, to save a bit of time here. First one is, what if demand from international students drops? And then the second one is, who or what is doing regulatory sandboxes well? John, you want to give it a try? Yeah, both good questions. On the first question, this is obviously something that I know the institutions are monitoring closely. International students represent a major part of our post-secondary system. They're obviously a key source of human capital for our country. In fact, previous work that I've done with the Public Policy Forum is focused on how to enact better Uh, retention strategies so that we can really leverage the human capital of international students in our country. So I understand that the the concern about the the potential fallout of the COVID-19 crisis and what that may mean for international student uh, enrollment going forward. On the question of regulatory sandboxes, I assume it's related to PSC in particular, not regulatory sandboxes in general. I think the state of Massachusetts has a pretty good record at permitting innovation amongst the major post-secondary institutions there, permitting greater exchange between, say, Harvard and MIT. That would be a model worth exploring. As we make sure that our post-secondary institutions remain, as Rivera said at the outset, uh, the source of strength for our country that they have for uh, the past several decades. Thanks so much. Bryce, I'm going to shift a bit over to you. Um, As I mentioned, we did have some questions submitted um, beforehand, so I want to take the opportunity to ask a few of those. One of the questions that was asked was essentially, how bad is the deficit that Canada will be left with? And I would take it one step further. Again, how would that impact our ability to action some of the things in this report? So essentially, the deficit is tracking more than $200 billion at the federal level could be as much as $300 billion. I wouldn't argue with that. Either way, it means that it will be the largest federal deficit as a share of GDP since the Great Depression. Fortunately, we can pay for that. First of all, we start at a very very favorable position relative to our G7 peers. The federal debt to GDP ratio is very low. Even if you take into account the provinces and calculate the net general government debt to GDP ratio, it is very low compared to the G7 peers. Second of all, when you think of this deficit, think about what it's doing. It's trying to bridge the gap until the economy can gradually restart. So by definition, it is short-term in nature. It's not like the deficits that were more than 5% from 1977 to 1993, and for some years in between that, more than 8%. Those were large deficits as a share of the economy, and they were persistent. This is a one-time hit or almost a one-time hit. We can talk, talk about stimulus and recovery, which I think is important, but that's a different story. Finally, and I think most importantly, is the interest rate environment here. We're running this deficit, this you know, largely short-term deficit, an environment where the government of Canada can borrow for 10 years at 0.6%. A lot of my day deals with speaking with investors and people who are moving markets. When they are offering money to the government at 0.6% interest per year, that means they're very willing to fund this deficit. And this deficit is not going to call into question the fiscal sustainability. So moving on a program that we suggest should be very little, not very much changed 
as a result of the crisis situation moving forward. Katie, if I could just uh, follow up on a point that Royce made, and you know, when you compare this when you say that this is a temporary situation with intentionality, a word you guys use uh, vis-a-vis industrial policy here, but I would say it's a intentional mission-driven fiscal policy as well, if you will. And in that way, I guess it's more reminiscent of the Second World War than it is of the uh, 70s uh, to 1998 period, the 25 years of, of consecutive deficits there. And I've been struck as I've read up on this that uh, that we moved from these huge deficits in 41 to 45 to, to the largest surplus in the history of Canada in 47. I don't know how that happened, Royce. I'd welcome a paper on that as well. <laughs> I'll get right on that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. So we have a question from Neil. He he asks, or he states, I guess, challenge-driven seems synonymous with demand-driven. For a small country, is there a risk of tackling challenges where there are already global leaders or other geoeconomic powers who can outspend us on these challenges? If I can just expand on that for one second, Katie, because the end of your question asked, will the current deficit impair the ability of the government to pursue the industrial policy strategy set out in the paper. Royce has described why the current fiscal conditions uh, shouldn't be a problem. I would just add that our proposal isn't necessary, doesn't necessarily involve spending large sums of incremental public dollars. As we say in the paper, we already have a panoply of industrial programs. What we're lacking is an industrial strategy to bring some coherence to the way that the government is intervening in different parts of the economy. It comes back to my earlier point about choices. It's a false choice between a laissez-faire model and an industrial policy model. Presently, we, we, as we say in the paper, we sort of have the, the worst of both worlds. We're actively intervening in different parts of the economy, but without the coherence and intentionality that an industrial policy framework would provide. And, and in that sense, uh, you know, it seems to me quite plausible that an industrial policy framework wouldn't involve incremental new spending. It would involve spending public dollars uh, in a more targeted, intentional way. I've got, I think, one one final question, and it really is uh, related to that point. So the, the way this is framed, so given the resistance that both Sean and Robert would have known linked to public procurement and innovation in their days in government, how hopeful are you that we can finally overcome this barrier? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what we're saying is this is not uh, a framework that everybody will recognize themselves in. Like there are some sectors, for example, or some you know, parts of the economy that already are doing well that not necessarily need to join one challenge or not. But challenge is a very useful way to organize industrial policies, what we're saying, in a way that uh, you co-create markets where if the state would not put, for example, emphasis on R&D in certain sectors or certain technologies, we would not, as a country, have the spin-offs economically to benefit from it, essentially is what we're saying. There are many examples in this country where companies grew not just only because they were good, but they grew because it was an intention of the state to help them be successful, not necessarily with providing direct checks or, or uh, subsidies, but by fueling, for example, R&D. So what we're saying is we have to be more intentional about this. We have to be more structured and more focused about that. And there are parts or subparts of the economy that we already do very well. I think I can speak for myself uh, in the company I represent that cybersecurity is a place where Canada does well. We should double down on that. 
Uh, and there are obviously other sectors where, for example, on technology, AI, we've only in a, in a few years be able to gather some critical mass and some amazing research. But now we have to commercialize that research and make sure that Canada leads on a global stage. Otherwise, what will happen is we'll just have other global company come here, take on our, our good R&D funded by Canadian taxpayers and take it away from us. That's a bad externality, we would argue. Maybe to broaden out the question to start, um, I, I think what the question is getting at is that the animating ethos of uh, much of the federal public service has been reflected in the McDonald Royal Commission perspective for the past quarter century or 30 years. And and that uh, manifests itself in aversion to uh, more actively using procurement, for instance, to cultivate innovation. It manifests itself in an aversion to doubling down on technologies or subsectors where Canada seems to have comparative advantage. Viewers uh, will be familiar with the phrase spreading the peanut butter thinly, which is something we heard a lot in our consultations. And so there's no doubt that that instinct towards uh, neutrality or, or a preference for neutrality is going to be part of the policymaking ethos of, of parts of the federal public service. But I will say that in our consultations with ICED, with other parts of the federal government, I think there is a growing recognition of the facts on the ground that we're describing. New realism, if I can put it that way. And as Royce has said, I think the current circumstances are only going to affirm and accentuate that point of view. And so I'm, I'm generally optimistic that we are going to see a shift in the federal public service and the federal government more generally thinking on these matters. If I can just make one final point before I turn it over to Robert to comment as well. One thing I want to emphasize to viewers who may not follow these issues as closely is this change in, in thinking isn't just occurring within the federal public service in Ottawa. It's really, it's really happening across the Anglosphere, including amongst conservatives. Senators Marco Rubio from Florida, Tom Cotton from Arkansas, Josh Hawley from Missouri are pushing the Republican Party in a more industrial policy direction, in large part because of a recognition of the intersection between the intangibles economy and the new geopolitics. And so there's no doubt that there's been resistance to these ideas in the past. Oftentimes that resistance has been justified because of failures of industrial policy. But we think that the conditions on the ground have changed such that there will be a growing resonance with the ideas that we're putting forward in Ottawa and in capitals elsewhere around the world. If I may just add a small point on procurement uh, question, obviously we've explained the demand-driven uh, concept and why it's important for the government as the biggest buyer in the economy to, to drive that demand and uh, help company make uh, products and services. But I think it is becoming a competitiveness issue in the sense that our companies less and less have access to other markets because those markets are becoming protected. You look at the EU and you look at uh, China, obviously, and you look at the United States. So if our own companies cannot influence these markets and win these procurements, how is it that our own Canada will just not even help them? It seems to me that Boeing would not be the company it would be today if the U.S. military would not, not have bought stuff from them. And so is Silicon Valley. You know, we, we think that 
somehow the U.S. is based on free markets. A big reason why these companies became so powerful is that at the beginning of their endeavors, they were heavily, heavily able to render services and products to the federal government, the U.S. government, which is a huge buyer. We have to take this into account as well, in my view. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. Thank you to uh, the audience for your questions and to you, Sean Robert and Royce, for uh, thank you. a truly terrific, thought-provoking, persuasive discussion. This is a, uh, a difficult sort of sea change in thinking, and, and I think you guys have done uh, a great service uh, putting this forward. I also want to thank our team at PPF, particularly the policy lead on this report, Andre Lokes, our communications director, Heather Cavanaugh, our partnerships director, Masha Kennedy, our policy speaking team, uh, Nina Newman, Jonathan Perone Clow, and of course, uh, Katie Davey, who you had an opportunity to meet online. And once again, our appreciation to our partners, CIBC, the lead sponsor, Concordia, Microsoft, McCarthy Tetro, Mosaic Forest Management, National Research Council of Canada, Business Council of Canada, TELUS, and CDEC. Now, you can find this report alongside its first iteration, uh, the new North Star and the new North Star 2 at ppfform.ca. Like it, love it, tolerate it, despise it, please debate it. These are vital issues that require a vigorous conversation. There's a lot at stake and it will require all of our intelligences to chart the path forward. That's a wrap on this edition of our podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppformca. And until next time, I'm Edward Greenspawn and this has been Policy Speaking.